My favorite meal of the day is breakfast. When I'm on the road, I try to stop off at a mom and pop diner somewhere to get me some breakfast and some coffee. But you can't always find a mom and pop place. But when you're touring through the South, it seems like at every exit, there's a Waffle House. And for those of you who have never been to a Waffle House, it's very cheap, sort of good. <laughs> it's not great, but it's sort of good. And you can always find one. And there's a certain kind of person that hangs out there that you just don't see anywhere else. I had breakfast at a Waffle House this morning, and uh, I walked in. There's an old saying that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Well, if that's true, this morning when I walked into that Waffle House, I must have walked into a Mensa meeting. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, and I got my dog Russell sitting right next to me. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jason Ringenberg. Jason is a singer and a songwriter, and he's the front man for a band called Jason and the Scorchers. And you can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. The first time I saw Jason and the Scorchers was at the Arlington Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was probably sometime in the mid-80s. Just a great show, really high energy, and that stuck with me for a long time. I was a really big fan, and uh, I was really happy to later on in life get to open for them a couple times. And then I crossed paths sometimes with Jason since we play a lot of the same gigs. And uh, we saw each other at a festival. I can't remember the name of the festival last year in England. and got to have a nice little chat. But I want to say before I forget that Jason's raising money to make a new record. He's got an Indiegogo campaign going on. I kicked in. You should kick in also and help make that happen. And uh, you can go to his website at jasonringenberg.com and find out all the ways that you can help out. But Jason invited me out to his farm just outside of Nashville and uh, has a whole bunch of animals out there. We went out into the chicken coop. Chicken coop he built with his own hands. He's a really handy guy. And uh, he gave me a dozen eggs. His hens had laid that morning, so got some fresh eggs out of the deal. But we sat down at his kitchen table there, and uh, he was nice enough to share some good stories with us. Here's Jason Ringenberg. Uh, I have a total Norman Rockwell sort of upbringing. Like yourself, I uh, grew up in the Midwest, northern Illinois. My dad was a hog farmer. You know, it's been this family for a couple generations small town it was incredible you know a place called sheffield illinois and until i came out the only thing they were famous for was there was a nuclear waste dump there <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was about it really um although we did have a couple of good basketball teams back in the 70s you know i see kids now 
And wow, you know, they don't even have to mow the yard, you know? It's like their parents do everything. But when we were growing up, oh man, we worked. Like time like eight, nine years old, we were out there with dad every day that we weren't in school or doing sports. And we worked hard, you know, baling hay and cleaning out the hog houses, which was the worst. That's that's worse than it even sounds. You know, we had a thousand hogs to take care of. And there was always something to do. And it was hard, hard work, hard physical work, hard mental work, really, too. You know, it was just a lot of it was really disgusting work. Like, you know, was, you had to castrate hogs sometimes, you know, and you castrate 300 hogs, you know, in an afternoon. And that's, you know, you never forget it. <laughs> it's, you know, it scars you for life, you know. How old were you when you were started doing that? Uh, 10 or 12. I, mean, I didn't do the cutting, but, you know, we had to hold them. And I was a really small kid, very skinny. Um, you know, my brothers were big strapling farm boys, and I was sort of the skinny, <laughs> wimpy guy, artistic type. And, uh, but, yeah, it didn't matter. You know, I still had to be out there. But anyway, these hogs, I weighed like maybe 80 pounds. The hogs weighed maybe 40 or 50, you know, because you never got them young enough because we were always out having to bring the corn in or plant the corn or something stupid. You never were able to get the hogs, and they were small. So they'd weigh 50 pounds, and I'd be 80 pounds. And I had to pick them up. You had to hold them up by their back feet. And then the veterinarian would do the, the surgery, <laughs> the, you know. Um, and it was, the hog was squealing to try to bite your legs as you were holding it. it. You know, it would just jimmy back and forth and you couldn't get it to sit, st- stay still, you know. And you'd be vibrating and, um, you know, it was just an awful experience <laughs> for both the hog and the ten-year-old boy. And, you know. Were your parents into music? Were they musicians? Or? No, my people weren't. They were farm people, you know. Um, but my mom was an artistic person, and she just, you know, she just did things differently. And she had a way, and she liked music. And Dad liked to sing, but none of them were professional by any stretch. Well, my sister, I had older brothers and sisters, and they were hip. They were 60s kids. They weren't really hippies, but they were kind of geared in that direction, especially my, my sister, one of my sisters. And she would, like, bring home a piece of guitar and sing Bob Dylan songs and Peter, Paul, and Mary stuff and Blowing in the Wind and, and all that. And, you know, talk about they were going to go on strike so the, you know, the, the lettuce harvesters would get more money in California. She was that kind of, you know, that kind of, which was just, mind-boggling for for us back in Sheffield you know like wow that's just like she was like talking about being meeting a Martian you know um but she would bring home all this cool stuff and records and albums and that's where I started getting into it wow well you're from the Midwest so you were you were probably were as well but you're much younger than I am but oh yeah we we watched wrestling religiously Saturday nights and Sunday mornings who was it Dick the Bruiser or who was the Crusher, Mad Dog Michonne, and The Butcher, they were brothers. Um, and then the sort of little guy that always got beat, uh, George Scrap Iron Kadaski. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he'd always go up against these 500-pound evil guys, and he was the good guy, and he always got beat every time. I don't know how he ever, you know, <laughs> how he ever stayed in the business. But, um, yeah, he they would always introduce him as, and now, first they'd, talk, they'd do the... Um, the the evil guy first you know and he was the crusher who has beat you know 42 people and he killed four men and he crushed the skull of one of these you know his last opponent 
And now his opponent is the very capable George Scrapiron Kadaski. <laughs> Two wins, 84 losses. <laughs> yeah, the poor guy. And he always had this moment during the uh, wrestling match where he, he would almost win. And we were pulling for him. You know, we really wanted George Scrapiron Kadaski to win a match. And we'd be trying, we'd actually be yelling, you know, and screaming at the TV set, go, George, get him now. And he'd almost be pinning him, you know, into one, two. And then, you know, the, the, the crusher or, or Mad Dog Michonne would throw him over, throw him off. And then he'd come back and Mad Dog Michonne would throw him over the ring and, and beat him to a pulp. And, you know, George would walk away defeated. You know? Was the crusher a bad guy in, in Illinois? Uh, he was a good guy in Indiana. You know, I think I'm mis. Yeah, I think you're right. The Crusher was a good guy. Mad Dog Michonne was bad though, and the Butcher was terrible. Yeah, I was, there was confused when I was a kid because uh, he was billed as the man who made Milwaukee famous. The Crusher. Yeah, and my dad would listen to the Jerry Lee Lewis song over and over. So I was what made Milwaukee famous has made a loser out of me. So I was convinced that Jerry Lee Lewis hated the Crusher. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Let's see. And then from Indianapolis, who would have come over? Did Bobby Heenan ever make Bobby it? Bobby Heenan. <laughs> oh, he was so cool. He had the leisure suit. He was a genius at management. Yeah. Bobby Heenan. Oh, golly. Yeah, Bobby Heenan. He was from Indianapolis. and uh, Oh, yeah. There's something to be proud of right there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Your first exposure to how to make the entertainment business work. Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yeah. Bobby the Brain Heenan. But who are some of the other bad guys? The bad guys were the best. Oh, they were great. The 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 claw. Who had the claw? Remember the claw? Baron von Roschke. That's right. <laughs> oh God, Baron von Roschke. He had the claw. It was so dramatic. He pulled his hand up. You know, the claw. Well, I went to college after you know after high school. You know, I was still in Illinois. Um, place called Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and that was a big eye-opening for me because there was a lot of musicians and it was kind of a hippie druggy kind of school and just a lot of artistic kind of people that was really eye-opener for me and I started playing music with people but Carbondale was only three and a half hours from Nashville so there was a lot of like people that would go to Nashville and stuff and study the business and things they actually had a music business program but when I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to do music. And by that point, I was completely smitten. I was, I was sold over the top. I did complete my degree, but everything I did in college was music. You know, that's what I was, that's, you know, it was the gig that weekend that was the important thing in my life, not the, not the courses. But anyway, I thought about Austin. I thought about Los Angeles. I thought about London even. But Nashville just had a pull, you know. Plus, it was easy to drive. I could drive there, you know. And I could also drive back. It wasn't so far away. I could drive home to the farm and when I wanted to. And So I moved in July 4th, 1981. I loaded up my old Econoline van and put all my stuff in the van. And it's a very sort of romantic, just like you would picture it. It looks like everybody does here. It was like, I was like everybody else. You drive to Nashville with nothing and hoping for a dream to come true. And when I got there, you know, I had done no pre-production, <laughs> you know, no pre-planning. I didn't have a didn't have anything, didn't know anybody, had never even been there, but it was July 4th, and I started looking in the paper, and I saw an apartment for rent, and so it looked okay, and so I went and got this apartment, on, and it was, of all places, it was right behind Cantrell's, right there in that, that apartment there on Division Street, 
and uh, which is still there. It was right behind Cantrell's. And I remember the first night I was actually, you know, hearing music coming out the back of Cantrell's and, and you know, I started to hang out there and seeing bands. I saw R.E.M. there, you know, one of the first bands I saw. And that was the sort of beginning of the thing. But, you know, as fate would have it, that's that's sort of what got me started. I could have had an apartment in Antioch, you know, and then who knows what would have happened. <laughs> God, Nashville's a square place. I hate this place. What? Where's everybody at, you know? But I, I got lucky. You know? What was the scene like at Cantrell's right then? Like, who were you hanging out with? Who were your friends? Well, there was Cantrell's in Springwater. That was after Frankenstein's. That was after Frankenstein's uh, had closed. And there was Rick Champion and all his people and all those kind of bands that were, you know, of course, sort of under his his tutelage. But I met Jack at Springwater pretty quickly, Jack Emerson. And that was just a life-changing thing for me. That's If there was one moment in my life that just changed my life, it was meeting Jack. Um, we were at, I was at Springwater seeing a sort of punk rock band, cover band. Um, the singer was Barry Feltz, and uh, he was wearing a leopard skin leotard, <laughs> you know, like Tarzan, uh, but he was singing Sex Pistol songs. Um, it, was, it was so incredibly bizarre, but it, it just, it was so fun to be just around people like that again. And Jack was there, and he's this fuzzy-haired kid, college college kid from Vanderbilt. Started talking, and you know, I had my sort of rockabilly string tie on, and you know, sort of old '50s shoes, and we just sort of started talking. And he said, "You know, I really want to get something going in Nashville in the rock world. I think it's latent and ready for that. And I'm looking for people to to sort of join with to do that." And I was like, you know. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to take a, I want to take American sort of roots music and just kick it into the modern age. I want to make, you know, I want to make country music and folk music and rockabilly sound as aggressive as as, as the Sex Pistols or the Ramones. He immediately said, right on the spot. He said, "Okay, I can't play bass very well, but I have a bass and I have an amp. I'll play bass for you until you get something going, and I'll help you find some people. I know a few guitar players and drummers." Um. So Jack, he was on the concert committee at Vanderbilt, and he was, you know, he was just a kid, you know, just 20 years old. But he knew the concert booker. So they were bringing Carl Perkins in. And Jack said, man, if we can throw the band together really quick, I think we can open for Carl Perkins. My first gig in Nashville, man. You know, So we did. And, and actually, the drummer that we got was the singer in that punk rock band, No Art, Barry Feltz. And then uh, Jack had a lawyer friend who's a law school student. He played guitar, and we opened for Carl Perkins. And we called it Jason and the Nashville Scorchers. Me and Jack came up with the name. And uh, that was the first gig. Jack also knew the REM guys. So the second gig was opening for REM the next time we came through at Cantrell's. Um, and that's when things started to really cook, you know. Did you get to meet Carl Perkins? I did. He was still in really good health then, doing good shows. And he's a total pro, man, consummate professional. You know, he did a good show that day. I can't remember who was in his band, though. I don't remember that. But it was at Langford Auditorium, sold-out show. And he, you know, he rocked. He did a good show. Well, there was a serious connection with us in R.E.M. for the first four years or five years of the band, um, but especially in the early days. Because, you know, my, 
second gig as Jason, the Nashville Scorchers was opening for REM, thanks to Jack Emerson. But that was, it was, you know, Warner and Jeff and Perry weren't in the band yet at that point. But at that gig, Warner and Jeff were at that gig. Jeff was at the Carl Perkins gig. So he brought Warner to the REM show and we started hanging out and stuff. And it, um, but that, of course, is a whole other story. To, the REM connection started really, really quickly. Um, once the band got together, and for real, the, the real four guys, Perry, Jeff, and Warner, and myself, uh, we immediately started opening for REM a lot, doing a lot of shows with them, because Jack was such good friends with Jefferson Holt. We became good friends with all of them. They'd stay at our places. When they came to town, we'd stay at their places. We'd travel together. And my, I mean, I could talk a lot about REM, but the, the thing that I'd like to say most, uh, that, I, that I like to say most, is that even then they were very generous people, incredibly generous, uh, generous with credit, generous with their stage, and generous financially. Um, at the time, they were a step ahead of us. They had their first EP out, Chronic Town, and they were starting to make some noise. You know, we were making a little bit of noise, but nothing close to what they were doing. And but they were making maybe three hundred a night. You know, we were in the hundred to one hundred fifty dollar range. And many times, you know, we'd say, well, we're going to travel overnight to get to the next gig. We can't afford a hotel room, but period, you know, it's just out of the question. And they would say, oh, man, don't do that. That's that's just don't do that. It's too dangerous. It's too late. You know, uh, here's 50 bucks. Get a Motel 6, you know, and that doesn't sound like anything now. But in those days, you know, that was, that was a huge, a huge amount of money for them. That might have been their profit for the night, you know, and they were that way all the time. And they'd always have us up playing, you know, at the end of the show, we'd all have a big jam. We'd do New York Doll songs and, you know, whatever, you know, so whatever came to our minds. And, but they were just like that. They were very generous people. And it was exciting to be around them. Not only were we sort of exploding creatively, but they were too. So there's two really explosive bands that are sort of creative early point. And it was just a lot of fun. And incredibly decadent, <laughs> you, know, you know. The towns were, weren't the same after the Scorchers and REM went through a lot of fun. Early on, we did cross paths with a lot of folks. And, but the, the band made such an immediate impression. Because it was, you know, it's hard to imagine now because Nashville is such an entertainment capital, it's, you know. It really is Music City, but back in those days, it was a small scene. It was just basically a few country people who were selling 100,000 records and, and us, you know. It was a crazy, crazy place, wide open. And anyway, a lot of people would come to our shows that you would never think. Bill Golden from the Oak Ridge Boys was a big fan of Jason and the Scorchers, National Scorchers at the time. He'd come on stage with us. He'd sing Jenny, Jenny, Jenny and whatever, old 50 songs. Emmy Lou used to come and see us, Rodney Crowell. You know, just folks like that. Uh, Cash never came to a show, but he was aware of us, and I met him once at a party. We talked for a while. Can you tell me about that, meeting him? Um, it was in the 82 or 3, maybe 4, 83 or 4. And it was at probably a low point for Johnny, I think. You know, and I got the feeling he wasn't particularly happy at this party. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, But he was aware of us, and that was cool. And that made me feel – but it was – and in those days, Johnny Cash was not considered cool. You know, understand it was, he was considered pretty square. And a lot of people in our world made fun of him. But I, I never did. I thought he was, I always thought 
Cash was pretty cool. And it was, you know, it was, I knew then it was an honor to meet him. But the only time I really met him first, you know, firsthand in those days. Of course, as we became bigger, then we met people all the time. But in those days, meeting someone was a really big event, you know. Did you ever play with the replacements? You know, we were friends with the replacements. I think we may have done a show or two with them, but not as many as you would think. Stinson played bass on one night for us, though. Jeff it was 86, I believe, and Jeff couldn't make it through the show. Uh, and I won't say why, but he couldn't make it through the show. <laughs> and Stinson somehow ended up on bass with us. It was god-awful. It was horrible. <laughs> you know? But, but uh, you know, he, he did the best he could. You know, don't misunderstand me, but it was um, he didn't know the songs. Um, it could be argued he might not have known some of the replacements. <laughs> you could easily be argued, yes. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, we were in the same circuit. But not we didn't play as much with him as you would think. But, yeah, we all knew each other, and I think Jeff knew him better than I did. Jeff actually hung out and partied with him and all that. Well, in those days, it was... Um, you never quite knew what kind of star was going to show up, and that's what made it interesting. Because that, and that was what was so interesting about the band. I remember we'd play, we played Danceteria in New York one time, '82, maybe, and uh, you know Richard Hell was there, you know, and uh, Lou Reed was there, and you know Jeff, of course, was just totally into this. <laughs> you know, he was just sold on this whole thing. You know, like, wow, Richard Hell's in our audience, you know. And then we came back, you know, a week later and play Exit In and, and Emmy would be in the audience, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, Emmy Harris is in the audience. But it was that kind of thing. It was, it was that kind of band that, that we just, people from both sides of the equation come, would, were checking us out. That was really fun. That was an, an, an interesting time for the band. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jason for inviting me out to his farm and sitting down at his kitchen table and having this chat. You can find out everything you need to know about Jason at jasonringenberg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, Anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.